Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. When I wrote my book, I kind of thought of it as a an argument dressed up as a memoir. And the argument was you should meditate. And I assumed that the, the, the big point I'd have to make is that meditation isn't as weird as you think. It's a little weird, uh, but not as weird as you think. Um, and what I've come to realize in the last couple of years since the book came out is that in some ways I'm fighting the last war. Uh, that In fact, there are a lot of people, especially younger people, who don't think meditation is that weird. Um, I'll give you a story. I was recently at uh, Colby College, which is where I went to college. I went up to give a talk about meditation, and I showed up, and the room was packed. And it was a big room. It was like overflow. People had to go in other rooms and watch it on TV. Mind you, I couldn't even get a date when I was at Colby, and this room was completely packed. Now, I did learn, as an aside, that a lot of people were there because they were getting some course credit to be there. So that was that took some of the uh, 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 fun out of it. But anyway, my, my point is that people were really into the whole meditation thing. And in fact, during the Q&A section... Uh, uh, after I gave my talk, they, we did Q&A, and there was this guy got up, this like big guy, looks like he's probably on the football team, really good-looking guy, uh, and said that he was captain of the Mindfulness Club at Colby, and they meet every week in the chapel, and everybody should come. So I was just blown away, and I just have, uh, you know, I've just found that as I've gone out into the world and talked about meditation, some of the most receptive audiences are high schools. Um, and I'm, and I've, I've spoken at you know fancy pants high schools and. Uh, suburban New York, but also in inner city uh, high schools. And, and uh, I've been really impressed by the extent to which young people are totally into meditation, uh, uh, which is really cool. And which brings me uh, to my guest this time, who's Jesse Israel, who is uh, himself a young person, 31 years old, a proud millennial, and is uh, the president, president, founder, what's your title? Co-creator. Co-creator. That's a very millennial term. Uh, of something called Medi Club, which uh, we will go into detail but uh, about it, or Jesse will, uh, is active here in New York City and I believe some other cities or mostly just New York? Right now, just New York. So Medi Club is a place where, and he'll talk about it at a greater length, where a, a lot of young people, but anybody really, uh, comes and, and meditates together all over the city. And then they put on something called the Big Quiet in uh, Central Park. And 2,000 people came and meditated. And this is these were like hipsters. They, they were like man un- ironic man buns uh very strategic uh facial hair uh, this is this is this is serious hipster action going on um i felt very old and uncool um so all of which to say that somehow meditation is really taking off among young people and make and it really makes me realize that, that some of my shtick which is trying to convince people that it's not for freaks is it, not just for freaks is maybe outdated anyway so we'll, a lot of things to talk about with you jesse but thank you for being here for thanks sure. for having me so um before we get into all the things you're doing now uh can you just tell me how and when and why you started meditating sure so I got into meditation in my early 20s, and the reason why is because I had started a record label when I was a sophomore at NYU. Um, a band, a college band that we had signed, started to take off. Which and was MGMT. MGMT, yeah. Great band. Oh, I'm glad you like them. That first record was amazing. Yeah. I have to say, and maybe people are going to get mad at me, they kind of lost me with the later records, but that first record was amazing. So that, that first record is a special one. Yes. For sure. So, you know, we were, we were young guys sophomores at NYU. How did you hook up with these guys? How did you, I mean, I was a sophomore. I, I could barely get to class. I was so hungover. How are you starting um, a record label? Uh, also hungover at class. <laughs> My sophomore roommate, uh, a gentleman named Will Griggs, um, his cousin was 
students with the, the, the two creators of MGMT at Wesleyan College. Ah, so we learned about their music. We actually heard an MP3 of the song Kids that they had created in their dorm room at Wesleyan. And that's how we learned about it. And we just saw an opportunity and believed in it. We didn't, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, I was a film student. But uh, we went for it. Nice. So to get to meditation, uh, move forward a couple years. You know, I was like maybe 23, 24 and I was overwhelmed. I was essentially running a record label full time while also being a student. Graduated, jumped right into it. Um, you know, got the office space, had the studio, signing lots of bands, going to concerts, and it was overwhelming. And I was looking for tools to manage stress. That's really what you know hooked me in was stress management. Um, so that's how I initially got into it, and then it sort of evolved from there. I should just say that, that in the, the for those listening, we're, we're recording this with video cameras, but I suspect a lot of the people who are consuming this podcast are listening only, so those who can't see you. Jesse is a very tall, good-looking dude, the kind of dude who like would probably have shoved me in a locker when I was in <laughs> high school. Um, so like also just further to my point that, that meditation is a lot of cool young people are into it, which just ba- boggles the mind for me. But I think it's great. Uh, so anyway, what kind of meditation were you doing when you got into it? So at the time, there, were, there weren't a ton of sort of public, say, millennial-facing options like we're starting to see now in New York and other major cities. So this is like 2006? No, it was it was because I graduated in 08. It was probably around 2010. Okay. Yeah, probably 2010-ish. So I've, the only place I could find at the time was the Shambhala Institute. And I remember rolling up to their intro course, and it was kind, kind of sleepy. And I, I learned a practice that wound up being very powerful for me, but I didn't feel like that was sort of my place to practice meditation and the people that were also in the class, I, I didn't really feel like I could relate to. So it kind of became a personal journey for the next eight or nine months while I just sort of practiced my own Shambhala technique. So you had a kind of an entrepreneurial itch when you walked into that room like, oh, I felt I it get then. It. Yeah. I felt it then. But I, I, I hadn't experienced it yet, so I didn't know the power of it at the time. So let's just unpack that for a second. So uh, Shambhala is, a, I think, a Definitely very active all over North America, maybe globally. Uh, it was founded by a guy named a Tibetan guru by the name of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, who is no longer with us, but his son is, I think, running the thing. Um, and he was a really interesting guy, uh, somewhat controversial too. Um, uh, he embodied what's known as crazy wisdom uh, because he was a little bit crazy in some of his behavior, but also uh, uh, by, I, I've never, I never met the guy, but by everybody I've spoken to who knows him said he's apparently really uh, uh, smart and uh, inspiring person. Um, but anyway, what, so, and he's a Buddhist, uh, so this is Buddhist meditation. Um, what, what was the practice that you learned? The practice I learned at Shambhala was an eyes-open practice um, it was relatively inspecific, unspecific in regards to how, how long we could practice for. I remember the instructor kind of be like, ah, see what works for you. I think maybe around 10 minutes what was, what was suggested. So it was sitting upright without back support, gazing down at the ground, um, sort of a soft gaze, and uh, bringing your attention to your breath. It was, it was pretty straightforward. And what did it do for you? It was very powerful. Um, I, I got into it and the first thing I realized was that even 10 minutes was going to be unrealistic for the way that I was living my life. So I kind of created my own routine around, um, how to build habit 
for meditation. And I actually wound up reading The Power of Habit several years later and I was mm. like, oh, I kind of did that. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it was what's realistic to make happen every morning. So it was like after I'd brush my teeth and I'd leave the bathroom, I would just sit down for three minutes and practice. Um, and after about a month, I was able to move it to 10. And then I just sort of had this routine in place. So I had um, probably a 30-minute practice happening every morning. And what I saw was that I was leaving my apartment, walking to work, almost f- kind of feeling like I was floating to work, just mm. feeling super calm. And whatever was coming at me, it was a high-stress period for me. Whatever was coming at me, I was able to sort of look at consider before I'd react to. And the emails that used to come in, like those, the, the bad emails that kind of get you in the stomach, weren't really getting me in the stomach as much. I was kind of like, oh, you know, it's like bad news, good news, just news. And it was happening in, you know, a matter of months. So I was, I was, I was kind of hooked early on. It's a great way of describing it. Um, and I'm just curious, just to go back though for a second to you, to the, to the habit what did you do right there, and then how did it expand from three to thirty minutes? So, uh, quick, quick, quick rundown on on what Charles speaks about in the Power of Habit. Charles Duhigg, New York Times reporter who wrote the Power of Habit, right. best-selling book. Yep. So, um, you know, he he looks at essentially identifying um, a cue. Uh, God, I'm not going to get the words right. Don't worry about it. Okay. Anyways, essentially, what I was doing was I had my cue every morning, which was when I leave the bathroom, um, I always will sit down for a period of time and have my practice. Routine, it was cue. Cue is leave the bathroom. Routine was sit down for three minutes and practice the Shambhala technique. And then my reward was, uh, which is the third piece to the habit loop, was um, um, I I had an app where I would sort of tally every day I did it in a row. The app that I was using was called Chains. And it allowed me to sort of maintain uh, regularity around a practice. And the more days in a row that I was able to plug into this app, sort of like the more colorful and big this chain would be. Uh, I see. Cool. Right? So uh, I just sort of built a habit loop for myself. And then after probably a, a couple of weeks of doing that, my body just started to naturally want it. That's phenomenal. And so is that what your practice is today still? It's not, no. So after about nine months of, of doing the, the Shambhala practice, I um, I met someone named Light Watkins, who's a Vedic meditation teacher, and um, I got into that and just kind of felt like it was more in line with how I was living my life. I loved how it was uh, scientific and uh, deeply informational and that there was room to kind of grow and study the Vedas, which I wound up getting really into. So I'm a, I'm a Vedic meditator today. So uh, what it, describe for me the Vedic meditation technique. So it's similar to TM. I know you've, you guys have talked about TM on the show before. Um, eyes closed, sit comfortably with back support. You're given a mantra that's somewhat specific to the student, and you sort of gently and effortlessly say your mantra while your eyes are closed in this comfortable position. And if you um, catch yourself having thoughts, it's totally cool. You let the thoughts come, and you just return to your mantra. And do you time the saying of the mantra to your breathing? No, you don't. You don't. You um, you you kind of learn the rhythm through the course that you do to get your mantra. And how much of this are you doing? I I practice Vedic meditation about twenty to thirty minutes in the morning, 
and then anywhere from like 30 minutes to 50 minutes in the afternoon. Wow, so that's quite a bit. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a big chunk. What would you say is the impact of Vedic meditation? How is the impact of Vedic meditation different from uh, the Shambhala technique? That's a great question, and it feels pretty clear to me. And i got to preface it by saying that I only practiced Shambhala for about eight months, and I've been doing Vedic meditation for I don't know how much longer it's been since then, five, six, five, I guess five years, six years. So, you know, they're weighted. But um, what I've, like I mentioned, what I found from Shambhala was that instantly right after a meditation, I found myself totally relaxed and calm and um, very unreactive and sort of contemplative before having an emotional reaction to something. That was like my biggest takeaway. With the Vedic practice, I haven't felt as much of that. There isn't as much of like, I just finished meditating, I feel zen, I'm gonna float around. (laughs) Um, I I don't really feel that way. But what Vedic meditation has done, which has been really powerful for me, is it's slowly sort of stripped stress out of my body. So over time, stress triggers that have been built up, and I've had quite a few of them from my childhood, have um, uh, essentially melted away. So I've been able to have a clearer channel between what maybe you would call your intuition or your gut and my heart and my brain. So what I find is that it's much easier for me to make decisions based on what feels right as opposed to what maybe logically I think should be right. So I'm able to follow my intuition. And, um, uh, and feeling into that has been one of the most powerful kind of components to the way I live my life and the way that I make decisions in my life. Can you give me some examples? Yeah, I mean, the, the be- probably the most relevant example I can give, which is re- relevant to this talk today, is you know, I, I wound up running that record label for nine years um, after we signed MGMT and, you know, we built a tech fund and a whole live entertainment beast, piece to the business. And it was an, an incredible ride. And um, as, the, as the company was growing, there was something inside of me. Really, the more I was meditating, the more this was starting to come up that was saying, this has been an amazing chapter in your life, but it's time to move on and figure out what's next. And there was no logic based around that. All the logic said, Stay at the company, amazing business partners, great Soho office, um, you know, company reputation is killer, uh, money's good. But my intuition and sort of my heart was saying, you're meant to do something else right now. And that's all I had. And that's, and that's what I gave myself to. And now, and now I'm giving myself to this, this work. So you walked away from the company? Does it still yeah, exi- it was a process, but... Does it still exist? Oh, yeah, it does. So that was somewhat of a, I would imagine, economic sacrifice? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my lifestyle changed. Because you had less revenue? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you walked away, what did you walk away to do specifically? Well, I, I traveled a little bit. I went off to Africa and kind of did that thing. Did your business partners think you had lost your damn mind? Um, no, they, were, they understood. It was, it was a painful process. Um, but they understood. I mean, ultimately what I've found is if I'm speaking from my heart and pretty much it's coming from my heart, you can't really argue with that. It doesn't mean that someone may not be hurt or that it won't be emotional for me, but, um, I was coming from my heart and ultimately I find people really respect it, but it was a challenging transition. It was kind of like, like an amicable divorce, you know, Mm. and it was a process multiple months while I was still in the office and everyone knew I was kind of moving on. It was, it was challenging. And I had no idea what I was going to do next. Zero. So I went on and I traveled for a little while. And, um, I, uh, I 
it's kind of like about a year before I left the company, I was thinking about other ways I could kind of give myself to passions, just as side projects. And I've always loved community organizing and bringing people together. I had a cheeseburger club that kind of spread, and it was a blast. <laughs> well, wait, so, wait a minute. <laughs> where was the cheeseburger club? Cheeseburger club started in New York. This was this when, I was still, when I was – this was, I guess, the year after I graduated from college. Um, and the cheeseburger, the cheeseburger club is called the Burger Boys in New York, retired. But it was 10 guys. We'd come together every other week, eat a different cheeseburger throughout the five boroughs of New York. And really what it was, it was men's group. It was sort of like support for one another as, as you know, guys in their 20s trying to figure out the world. But cheeseburgers were the reason to come together and kind of talk about what's going on in our lives. After the break, I use emojis and ride a skateboard. I go through a lot of breakups. I travel a ton. I get exhausted. I get excited. I get sad. I get inspired. And I meditate twice a day. After this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. 
Lidocare has created a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. Cheeseburger Club sounds just like purely awesome to me. It was the best. It was like it was like your best buddy's birthday every other week, <laughs> and then and then it grew. We had a uh, we had a Tumblr presence. We kept we we live blogged every burger we had as a group and individually, and we had chapters of the Burger Boys pop up in Stockholm, the Burger Boys off Stockholm, and then we had chapters on the West Coast. You know, it, there was something special there, and I was I was inspired by kind of creating that and mm-hmm. building that. So um, what I was mentioning was that about a year before I left my company, I started to look at other ways I could bring people together through a shared interest, sort of in the name of fun and human connection. So I started a bike club, which was the first ride was, was me and 18 friends who all had bikes, and we just sort of went on this journey. I didn't really tell anyone we were going, and we just cruised, went to Coney Island, went on the cyclone roller coaster, and on the ride back to uh, the Williamsburg Bridge, which is our, our starting point. We um, decided we would name ourselves the Cyclones, and everyone in the bike club told their friends. The next month, we had 40 people show up for the ride, and then by the time I left my company, we were a bike club of over a thousand people. Wow. And when people would come together to ride, we'd really we're taking over five, six blocks. And I was feeling very called to bringing people together and sort of creating these shared experiences. So when I was traveling in Africa, right when I left my company. I was at that point thinking about how I could sort of lend more purpose to our bike club and give myself to it because I didn't really have anything else to do. And that was, that was a really scary feeling because I was running a business while I was a student. I never not had something to do. Um, so we, anyways, we wound up creating a bike share program um, for, for rural Tanzanian students who were walking up to 20 miles to get to school, essentially bike share program to help students be better students and to kind awesome. of identify future leaders. And I just loved this sense of purpose, bringing people together. We'd go on these rides, kind of speak in front of the group, rally people up. This is how we're going to raise money, get involved. Let's build this thing. And it really, um, it had everything to do with the work that I do today. That's really cool. So then what happened that brought you to uh, organizing around meditation? So at that point when we, when we did our bike share program, it was, dis- it was November of 2014. So I was like, I don't know, maybe five months into having left my company. And by December of 2014, it was too cold to ride bikes. And then I was like, oh, God, I'm faced with the, the giant question mark of the unknown once again. Um, by and the way, was, you, probably, you probably don't have any income at this point, right? Almost, almost out of my savings. Wow. At that point. Well, I was getting, I was, I, I saw, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was trickling. Okay. And you know, the, the company I was running, we, we didn't have any major exits or we had some hits, but like, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a huge savings. It was a startup. So I was, you know, kind of limited to begin with. Um, and finances played a, a huge, it's been a big fear in sort of my story since I left two years ago, come to an interesting place on it. We could touch on that later yes, if you'd like. Absolutely. But, um, uh, it was too cold to ride bikes. And there was the question mark of what to do. And at that point, I was asking people um, what they thought my greatest gifts were. 
Um, and I was just kind of curious to hear about it from people because I was getting really in my head about what to do next mm. because I was getting job offers that were um, in the music and tech world that were so incredible. And I was, I was, I felt so lucky to be getting these offers, but it, it was just like, I knew it was what I wasn't here to be doing anymore. So saying no to that and not knowing what was next was really, really tough. There's sort of, sort of like a lonely, a lonely feeling around that. And I can acknowledge that I'm saying this from a very, you know, privileged place, but it was, it was a, you know, it was, it was a challenge. Um, and I was asking people what they thought my gifts were to start to create some ideas around what I could start to give myself to. And what people kept saying was, you can bring people together. You have leadership abilities. Um, uh, uh, and, I, you know, and I, would, I would think to myself, yeah, it's true, but there's, what's the business there? So I would kind of like you know, blow it off. And then eventually I was like, all right, well, I might as well play around with this. I have something I love doing. It's something that people keep telling me that they like when I do. Um, how can I combine it with a passion? And meditation had been this huge piece of my young adult life, as I had mentioned. And it was one of the only consistent components of my life during this period of intense transition. So, um, and I was seeing that lots of young people in my communities from the music industry, from the tech house, the places I was partying in New York City, you know, th these active people that you wouldn't think to be meditating at the time were starting to learn meditation. So we hosted our first Medi Club in December 2014, about a year and a half ago. And I sent an email, and that email has been turned into a blog post, which is the extent of our website. We actually don't even have a, a website, just a, a Medi Club blog post. And it pretty much said, you know, I'm a young guy, party. Oh, I have it right here. Oh, let you got it right there. Let me read it. Let me read it. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, it says, oh, this is great. Um, I'm 30. I stay out late and party. I start my own businesses. I use emojis and ride a skateboard. I go through a lot of breakups. I travel a ton. I get exhausted. I get excited. I get sad. I get inspired. And I meditate twice a day. That was your call to action. That was it. And that people it. responded. Well, I, as I as I went on in the in the thing, we've, I can paraphrase it if you'd like. By the way, you got to stop it with the emojis. No more emojis. Well, you, you have to remember, this was this was a year and a half ago, uh -huh. and I've I've shifted the way I use emoji. Okay, well, for the record, to, to not using. Them I actually have I've actually de-evolved to using um, the emoticons. Oh, I see. Right? So I'll so use the hyphen school. with a parenthesis. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my style. I, 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 think, I think you just got to <laughs> go cold turkey, man. I know you're young. I respect young. you for it, man. I respect <laughs> you for it. I'm trying to bring back the emoticons. You are? All right. All right. Um, we can agree to disagree. Uh, so so you, you, you post this, and, and what happens next? Uh, well, in that, there's a call to action, which essentially says, let's get together and share quiet. Um, we'll meditate. We'll talk about meditation. We'll talk about what's going on in our lives. We'll have a little party with quiet. And I emailed it to, I don't know, maybe 40 people that I knew were learning meditation, but didn't have place to practice meditation together or, you know, with quote unquote, like-minded people. Um, and I think we had about 23 people show up to the first Medi club. And at that first one, I was just like, I saw the thread. I was like, we had about this many people for the first bike ride. We had a you know, small group for our first cheeseburger meeting. Um, I, I kind of was starting to feel the potential right at that first gathering. And uh, Emily Fletcher, who's a Vedic meditation teacher, kind of gave me some support and courage to get it going. Um, so she helped me organize that first one. And uh, people just liked it. People, I think, weren't used to people that are used to seeing each other in a work context or a social context, we're definitely not used to sharing quiet. And, um, you know, we took a risk with the first Medi Club. 
where um, I decided to share about my process, my career process, and sort of the, some of the fears I was having around that transition and, you know, got real, as we like to say. And I almost didn't say it because it felt pretty scary to be that vulnerable. I know you can relate to this. Mm. And um, after I gave my share, the room was totally quiet. I did it right after the meditation. The room was totally quiet. And then one other person shared at the same level of depth and vulnerability. And then the room just lit up. And you had all these people who, from what I can tell, weren't really communicating like that very often, were sort of doing it with strangers. And there was something very powerful there. Um, and that has been foundational to MediClub. We don't just come together to meditate. We also come together to hold space for safe conversations around, you know, the shit that we're going through in our lives as, as people that live in New York. So, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I see a little bit of um, – maybe this is egotistical, but I'll say it anyway. I see a little bit of myself in what your approach is um, in that you kind of saw an opening in the market. You know, as you say – went on to say in your blog post that – you know, there are a lot of people who are really interested in, in, in my age group who are interested in meditation, but there's nowhere for us to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you really did. And I, that was my feeling, you know, back in 2009 when I f- first started getting interested in meditation and started reading all these books that were great. But I realized that somebody like me would never – most people like me would never read one of these books because they're right. filled with a lot of language that is off – I, th- I found off-putting. Mm-hmm. And so we both kind of had a sort of an entrepreneurial view on this thing. Um, totally. So after you had that first meeting, what, what happened next? The, the reaction I got from it was, was moving. And um, uh, what, what people expressed to me was that they had been sort of yearning for this type of space. And having found it from that gathering meant a lot to them. That was one piece. The other piece was... Uh, I kind of stepped back that night and I was like, holy shit, I'm meant to do this. Hmm. You know, it's, it's bringing people together with a, with a, a whole deeper purpose. Um, and uh, we did our next Medi Club the next month. It doubled in size. And by the third or fourth, the loft that we were using in Soho's, my buddy was lending a space to us, was at capacity. So it became clear that we needed a platform to sort of share this value system of, I guess you could say, a more conscious way of living a modern life. Do, is it a business? It's becoming one. How? What's the revenue? Well, right now, it's, it's essentially an events business. So through Big Quiet, and we haven't actually, we actually haven't through Big Quiet made a profit. All the money we've been making off of Big Quiet, we've been, we've been uh, partnering with, with certain nonprofits. But what we realize is that the opportunity right now as an events business, um, but we have all sorts of ideas about how to uh, go beyond that. Um, this thing can scale and reach lots of people if we're actually making money and putting a team to it. And we, after a year and a half of testing it and the various components, there's a lot of different things we could speak on if you'd like. Um, we're, you know, we're convinced that this can, this could have a pretty broad reach and the way to do it is to turn it into a business. So, um, there's MediClub, which is small group meetings and then big quiet, which are bigger events. MediClub gets together, the first Wednesday of every month, and it's, it's, it's capped at 150. That's sort of like the max number for a meeting that we feel like is most effective. But you have many, right? You have many so, so we have, tr- so we, we have that as well. Those are circles. Oh. So the core will come together. If you're in town, if you're interested, bring a friend. 150 of us gather the first Wednesday of every month. Okay. At those gatherings, we also talk about our circles, which are 10-person versions of MediClub that are hosted by members of our community who've been trained 
by me and a, and a small team to host their own group meditations and sort of safe space conversations to talk about real shit that's going on in our lives in different neighborhoods throughout the city in Brooklyn. And then at MediClub, that core monthly gathering, the 150-person one, we also discuss our plans for The Big Quiet, which is essentially a collaborative project to celebrate this value system with now thousands of people in the city. So it's three pieces. Gotcha. And The Big Quiet happens how often? Uh, So you were at our one-year anniversary, which Mm -hmm. was two weeks ago, and we've had six so far. So I guess, you know for two to three months. And how often do the circles meet? Every Wednesday. It's interesting to me because when I heard you talking about the circles at the Big Quiet, it made me realize, you know, this is the way megachurches operate. Yeah. Uh, did you take that idea from the megachurch? I wouldn't say, I would, I've been inspired by a lot of different uh, social movements. I've been really inspired by the civil rights movement. I've been inspired by by Rick Warren's work and by a handful of community activist tools and, and, and protocols. And really what I'm looking at is, you know, how do we take our value system and find a way to spread it in a way that is in line with how our generation is living our lives. And there's a lot to kind of pull from and also kind of keep behind with a lot of the examples that I gave. AA is actually another one that, that we looked at quite a bit, which I, you know, I, I was going with friends to open meetings because I loved the sort of conversation and connection that was happening and found that to be deeply inspiring as well. So the difference between AA, a megachurch, the civil rights movement, and what you're doing is that you're going to make a business. So first, I have two questions about that. Right. One is, how does it become a business? I'd love to just hear a sense of, to the extent that you're willing to talk about it, like what the business plan is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, is there, because as I was, uh, like two or three questions ago when I was talking about how we both, the, the mutuality here around us both having sort of an entrepreneurial itch, as I said, uh, when at various moments in our exposure to meditation, I started hearing some of my Buddhist friends say, well, hey, man, this is, you know, uh, in my ear, in my head, saying, mm. you know, this isn't supposed to be about turning a profit. This is this is really sure. sp- supposed to be something bigger and grander than that. So, those two questions, you can take them in whatever order you want. Okay, <laughs> um, I, I I totally respect that opinion in regards to uh, meditation not being something to charge for. Um, you know, the way that we're doing it right now, uh, and you probably saw this from the Big Quiet, is it's it's not just meditation. You know, we're we're taking over incredible spaces. We're booking incredible talent. And I actually have a team that I'm paying now sort of out of my own pocket, more or less, um, to create these experiences. Yeah, but by, by talent, you're talking about the, the, the musicians. Yeah, we have musicians and, yeah. at, every, at, at all of our events except for the circles. We now have musicians or we'll have guest speakers. Um, you know, it's, it's a celebration not only of meditation but of culture. And that's kind of how we present the experience. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a party with consciousness. Um, so, yeah, there are elements of that that people don't like that we charge for. And I totally respect it. It's, it's probably not for that person. What we're, what we're creating is not for that person. But there are a lot of people who are very happy to support the growth of our, of our values and, and to enable the experiences that are happening a, a lot to the point where you know, we, we have, we're having growth issues because we fill up all the spaces that we uh, organize in, which is awesome. Um, but I thought, you know, a decent, a, a decent bit about what it would look like if we didn't charge, we actually started without charging and, um, uh, it didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel like we would be able to do it in the way that we feel like we need to do it. And at the scale that we're ready to do it at to, um, 
if we weren't if we weren't charging for it. So it's definitely a new thing. Although we're seeing lots of different for profit businesses around meditation in New York. Yeah, but, no, I, uh, I, I, I'm a co founder of. Work, yeah, right. So I'm not getting preachy <laughs> with you. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so that's something that I plan on on sticking by. So what is the, the, the I guess so the of the two questions? Let me return right. to the first one. Describe for me how you see it becoming a going concern. Sure, sure. Um, there, are, so I think it's probably best for me to speak to what it looks like right now, and I can kind of allude to some of the bigger stuff, but I don't have it all figured out right now. Fair you enough. know, so um, very much in the process of figuring it out with an incredible group of mentors, and also from a lot of support within members of our community. But uh, right now, it's essentially an events business. Um, everything that we do, from the circles to our monthly medi clubs to our big quiets there's an exchange in price for. And what we do is we create tiers of pricing for people to contribute uh, what works based on their means to a certain extent. So the lowest price point for any, any, any of our gatherings is, is $10. And we've had some gatherings where the highest price point, like when we did a big quiet at Lincoln Center, the highest price point if you wanted to contribute was $55. So there's sliding scales based on the events. Um, so people are essentially paying to come to our experiences, and those experiences happen multiple times every Wednesday, like I mentioned, and then they happen on a larger scale. When we did the big quiet that you were at two weeks ago, um, uh, I wanted to give back to the City Parks Foundation because they allowed the first big quiet to happen as an opening act at Summer Stage at Central Park. So for the big quiet two weeks ago for our one-year anniversary, we actually wound up headlining and taking over the whole space for the night, and we took all the profit that we made from that event, which is about 20K, and gave it back to the parks. And that's because we charged $25 per ticket to come to that event. It allowed us to pay off the staff. It allowed us to pay off the team. It allowed us to pay off talent. Um, and it was allowed us to turn a little bit of a profit. So we're trying to find that sweet spot for events right now, which is not a huge business, but it's enough to allow us to grow and to keep sort of spreading this thing. Um, what I'm really interested in right now is refining what we're doing in New York before we bring the big quiet or medi clubs or our circle models to other uh, other cities but my concern is your you know older jewish uncle is yeah. uh how are you eating like how are you surviving um so i've i've, I've got my resources you yeah, know like sure. i have i have i have a side business which is um a production company that i started when i was a, a, a student at nyu that is still generating enough income for me to stay alive like in new york video production Video production, yeah. yeah. That's one piece to it. Um, I'm able to pay myself a part-time salary from the current work that we're doing. I'm able to have one full-time person on staff and two part-time people on staff at, through MediClub and Big Quiet. And I, I pay them through the money that comes in through the Big, through the Big Quiet and MediClub through our events. The commitment that I've made um, has been to give myself to this project and really do it right, really refine, test, iterate, really nail it here in New York and have faith that as this community builds, there will, be, uh, there will be meaningful ways to make money that also work with how our community wants to give money, because that's a really important piece to it. And this is a conversation we have a lot with our community. So I've adjusted my lifestyle so I can do that right now. You know, I'm, I moved out of my, my loft in Williamsburg to a much different style apartment with roommates for the first time in a while, which has actually been great, but that's you know, saved me thousands of dollars so I can really continue to test. Um, what I can see is this. People are very appreciative of what we're creating and very hungry for it. 
And my belief is that if we can continue to grow this and work with our community and here at our community and, and continue to find scalable models to give people what they're hungry for, that there will be ways to support myself, to support a team, to support a global team eventually. And um, there's a decent amount of blind faith that's going into it. But that's how the whole thing started. A lot of great businesses start this way. Yeah. And um, I really respect the question. You said before that we, you said before that finances were something that had been on your mind. Yeah, I yeah, suspect yeah. that you know making this sort of change in your lifestyle and all that stuff—it's not something you do lightly. Yeah, it, it was. It I was tormented by it. You know, like I, I left. I left a company, and I was living a certain lifestyle. And uh, the, actually, that wasn't as challenging as the job offers that I was getting yeah. that were really cool. I mean, uh, some of like my dream offers, a co- like a couple years ago, like, you know, a couple years back earlier on in my company, the kind of things that, that always sounded awesome. But like I had mentioned, there was this sort of intuitive calling to keep exploring and testing. So with that, I had to make this choice was like my lifestyle is going to change and it's going to be different than the way a lot of my, my best friends and peers live their lives. And you know you're talking to a um, you're talking to uh, a privileged guy who grew up um, on the west side in Los Angeles, and I was kind of raised in a certain way, and always uh, kind of felt like I would have lots of money always. And by no look, I'm good. I got a roof over my head. I'm in a good situation. It was very different than the way a lot of my peers are living their lives, the way I maybe would have expected I'd be living my life at this age. And that was just a really tough thing to, you know, sink into. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing at first, the, probably the first four months of leaving my company was uh, – the comparison to all of all of my peers and just watching them all kick ass because I run with a very talented, inspiring group of people. That was really challenging for me. And I had to kind of learn to just drop the comparison story and be like, I'm on my own path. Comparing mind, as in, the, in the Buddhist world, we talk about comparing mind. Yeah. When you're comparing yourself to other people, it's very painful. Very painful. So painful. It's ultimately wasted energy. And I, I, I felt- To a certain extent. I think to, sorry to interrupt you sure. because I think a little bit of comparing mind can actually be very motivating. It's, it's motivating, yeah. But when you you got a mindfulness is very useful to help you draw the line between useful comparing mind and right. useless comparing mind. It gets useless pretty quickly. Sure, I agree with that point. Yeah, I guess the 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 way that I was jumping into comparison at that stage in my life, it was just like instant torture, um, and and I I had to just drop it. Or else I would go into these these patterns, these holes, or just I would totally lose sight of how exciting this new the, this new phase of my life was, where I was actually able to give myself to exploring what I felt like I was really here to do. So, so your vision, your grand vision, is that many clubs, circles, and big quiet, big quiets plural will be happening in every city, totally all over the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've received, it's been a year since we've been doing the big quiet and we've received these host requests. We have, uh, we, we had this thing on our website where we could, people could sort of suggest places for us to bring it and offer to help create the experience there in over 150 cities and countries. And, you know, this has happened very organically. We don't really push this stuff. We, we have a splash page. We don't even have a website for MediClub. So, the demand is there and I can see it, especially right now. I feel like people are sort of extra hungry to come together and share experiences like what we're talking about. 
Um, and my, my belief is that this, this can work on a very large scale. And I think that the gatherings can get bigger. I think they can happen in more places. And what's really important to me is creating the intimacy while something like the Big Quiet gets larger. I think we'll, I think we'll do Big Quiet at places like Madison Square Garden. And, um, and as we get larger in that way and move to other cities, I want to make sure that we still have 10-person circles and peer-to-peer support that's happening regularly in the same cities that Big Quiets exist because um, that level of connection is, is, to me, just as important as that big mass shared experience of connection. Let me ask you some questions about uh, my experience at Big Quiet. Yeah. So, um, I mean, look, it's undeniably awesome from my point of view that have thousands of people like voluntarily, not only voluntarily coming together to meditate, but paying to do it. You know, I mean, they're really motivated. Um, but it was interesting watching my own mind during it because I'm such uh, – I can't – I'm not allowed to swear on these things, but I'm such a – it starts with an A and ends with an E. Um, <laughs> like I'm, I'm just in reflexively a little bit judgmental, and, and it got me thinking – first of all, like I, I was I, – I was like – I had so many things to say. I'm like having trouble saying any of them, but um, it just it, – it's very earnest. The, the your group is very earnest, and I, uh, you know, like I was saying before, the, like man buns and uh, you know, and f- flower crowns, and you know, like it's a very sort of it's like a combination of uh, hip kids and like the new age in a little bit, and you know, instead of clapping, you're kind of snapping right, and right, all that right, stuff, right. and so I found myself as like a crotchety older guy, like a little bit like oh my god, eye rolling, right? So. Am I a horrible person, or like what? What, what do you? What? Do you, how do you respond to my admittedly? Sell, I'm. I'm a little. Um, I'm not proud of my judgmental nature, but it is what it is. So, how do you respond to my response? It's it's such a good question, and it's one that's that's very relevant right now, because up until about a month ago, I was very concerned with you. I was very concerned about making sure that the snappers and the man buns and the crown wearers <laughs> and the Dan Harrises would all love the experience. And I was tormenting myself. And, you know, it's, it's like you, you, try to, you try to create something that's going to work for everybody. And I think you have sort of an impact. And um, if you're willing to really stand for something and do it in the way that you believe in, you can have a real impact, but you may not, uh, it may not appeal to everybody. So, you know, I think we have a pretty good balance, like considering what the event could be. It could be real eye-rolly, and um, there's a line to it. So for me, I want to create enough space for people to connect. So we will do some. We will have games where there's things like make your own handshake with someone you don't know, or snap instead of clap, and just kind of get break people out of the intensity of their own world and everything is, you know, got to be so right and so cool in New York, and just kind of loosen people up, but without going too far. So I try to just stay true to what feels good to me and sort of the other people in our community like that you saw on stage. And we build an experience that feels right to us. And there are going to be people that don't like it or roll their eyes. And I'm learning to be okay with that. But it's tough for me. No, I think, I think you're right. And I, you know, as I was berating myself for yeah. being kind of judgmental about it, um, you know, I started thinking a little bit about uh, um, uh, generational differences. You know, and I'm – 14 years older than you that's not like a ton but I'm from generation X you're generation Y right and it's and I was wondering like you know you here you you know in many ways we're very similar like I, notwithstanding the age difference you know I grew up in a very privileged Jewish household and 
uh, on, on the East Coast instead of the West Coast. And, you know, I went to NYU Film School. Uh, I went to Colby, but I did a semester at NYU Film. Like, we, we have a lot of similar similarities in our background. And if I was your age, we might have been even in the same friend group. Mm-hmm. But the way you talk is very different from the way I talk. Like, you talk about what you're meant to do here on the planet or you un- self-consciously talk about your heart. Um, like, I would never talk that way. You right. know, I grew up in – I was w- raised on Seinfeld, you know, like irony and, uh, you know, this sort of like nihilistic sarcasm. And uh, so I wonder, is that – is the, and from what I can tell with from working with a lot of millennials on the staff at Nightline and is, is that actually like being heartfelt and earnest and sincere is actually sort of okay in your uh, peer group. So do you think there's something to what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I, I actually think I think this this is an important point, and 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 and, and particularly in regards to how we explore this as a generation, there's definitely I guess you're calling it uh, a level of of being earnest. I think that we see um, that you know f- f- this is what a lot of research points to, and from what I can see, it's it's a lot of this is pretty accurate. You know, millennials are driven by purpose and yeah. mission. Yeah. We're more willing to speak vulnerably. We care about authenticity yeah. and transparency. And what I've seen is that it's great to go right into that. It's great to be able to have a conversation and talk that way. But sometimes I I see people. Uh, going to that space so quickly <laughs> that it would instantly turn someone who's not from the same mindset off from the conversation. And what I'm really interested in is how you and I can have a conversation if we maybe don't speak the same way where I can still be true about how I feel and how I speak without making you go, I roll the whole time we're talking. You haven't made me eye roll That's the, good. Whole, the whole That's time good. we're talking right now. <laughs> and I think the, the, the millennial emphasis on authenticity is very interesting because millennials, for example really embraced Bernie Sanders, not close to their age, right? Mm-hmm. Much older than, obviously, any millennial. Um, but, you know, barely combs his hair, true to the same beliefs he's had since he was 25 or whatever. And, uh, you know, and millennials really loved him for that. And sure. I found that even though I am not a millennial, um, I'm significantly <laughs> older than a millennial, um, uh, just the fact that I kind of own... The fact that I'm a judgmental jerk at times, that is in and of itself a sort of authenticity. And that's that that actually, uh, you know, I went spoke. I spoke at Wanderlust. Right. So this is like actually that they're not just millennials, but they're Mm -hmm. super earnest Mm -hmm. and super into their yoga poses and all that stuff. And I went there and and made fun of them for drinking kombucha (laughs) and wearing flower crowns and stuff like that. And they were totally into it. They're totally fine with it. And I, so authenticity theme, authenticity seems to me to be the coin of the realm here. Like as long as you're, as you said before, keeping it real, being real or whatever, um, then it's okay. As long as you're and, – and, and being respectful. So I actually have no disrespect for – I have actually an enormous amount of respect for what you guys are doing. It was only on the edges on the stylistic part where I found myself being a little bit like, oh, my God. It. But still, I felt badly about being like, oh, my God. <laughs> I love the self-awareness within the crotchiness. It's a beautiful <laughs> but, example. It's his crotchety <laughs> mindfulness. <laughs> for me, it's really just about meeting people at the level that they're at. And uh, this is just this boils down to emotional intelligence. It's like to what extent? All right, you're a millennial. You care about purpose and what feels right in your heart. To what extent do you just go right into talking about that and lose someone that you're trying to have a conversation with? And, and, to, and to what extent do you have a sense of 
okay, I understand where this person's at. Their, their value system may be a little bit different. I'm going to communicate in a way so we can stay in sync with how we're talking. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we think a lot about at our gatherings, actually. And if you ask me, I actually feel like we skewed a little bit too far to the side of that last big quiet. And Which side? To, to a little too far to the earnest side. Yeah. Um, because I'm really interested in, uh, right now I'm really interested in, in, in being able to celebrate this and share this with a lot of people. So if we go too far to the earnest side, um, then we start to lose people like you. And look, ultimately, like I said before, got to stay true to what feels right to us. But I am very interested in, in understanding how to meet people where they're at. So I think this, there's sort of a refined way to go about being authentic that doesn't push people away. I don't have it mastered, but it's something that I'm really interested yeah, in. I'm thinking about the same thing. You know, yeah. actually, I went to the Big Quiet with this a uh, woman who's just signed on to do uh, marketing consulting for uh, the 10% Happier app. Mm-hmm. And she invited me, and we went together, and I, m- I turned to her in the middle, and I said, we have to figure out as a company how do we not turn this crowd off while continuing to reach who you know the, you know, the broad mass of sure. uh, civilians out there. Um, and, and it's an interesting challenge. You know, yours is kind of like the diametric opposite. Um, yeah. Uh, it is a very interesting challenge. How can, but, but as you said, and I think what you said before, though, is at the end of the day, the right approach. If you do something that's designed to just make everybody happy, you'll probably do something sure. mediocre. Sure. So you kind of have to figure out what your gut tells you and right. go with that on right. some level. Right. And I, I will say, though, that I, I, have, uh, I have a sensitivity to being, too, to, be, to being too far in the earnest because it actually pushes me away as well. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I actually have a level of eye roll and sort of crotchetiness as well, maybe more so than you would think for what I do for a living. Um, and that's, that just doesn't speak to me. So, but I like this stuff. I, I'm willing, I, I can go there and I'm willing to go there in a way maybe more so than other people. <laughs> <laughs> like the so, guy you're talking so, to right so, now. <laughs> so it is, it is ultimately a balance. And so, I think that has a lot, lot to do with the success of our growth is that, is that I'm trying to stay true to that balance, not too far on either side, because that is really what's most meaningful to me and a lot of people in our community. Fair enough. I like the word balance. I think that's a, that is a good goal. One of the things that you do, and I wonder if you think this has been part of your success, is that you are, and this is your term, practice agnostic. People come to MediClub, but you don't, you're not actually dishing out one kind of meditation. Now we share a technique that people can use if they're new to meditation. We encourage you to practice whatever you want. We encourage you to to talk to other people and, and learn what they're up to. We have a resource page that has tons of different ways to learn meditation. But what was happening was people were showing up to MediClub having never meditated before. Uh, and, they had, and then you sit in yeah, silence right. and they leave and they're like, yeah. this sucks. So we, we, give it, we give a four-minute technique that people can use if they like to. Um, the other thing you, you emphasize is that you want to make meditation relevant to a- things that are active in people's lives like creativity, sex, and business life balance. Um, how, can you talk to me a little bit about how meditation has been useful for you in those areas? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've spoke quite a bit about how it relates to business. You know, it's given me it's given me clarity, uh, or it's allowed me to refine intuition to make decisions that feel right. So that has lent itself in a major way to business, and it's also lent itself in a major way to um, how I show up in relationship. Um, Although you said you break up a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Definitely, I've been I've been through I've been through a handful of breakups, um, but you know how you go about the breakup, and uh, being able to know when it's time to yeah. break up, 
Um, these are things I'm still learning. <laughs> gotcha. But uh, but meditation has has played a really big role in how I show up as a lover, how I show up as a, as a partner, as a romantic partner, as a business partner, um, and as a creative person. You know, like so much of what we're building right now, like you've referenced some of the uh, sort of other movement examples. We spoke about those earlier, but in many ways, what we're doing hasn't really been done. So there's a lot of creativity that's required to allow this thing to grow. And it comes from a lot of collaboration, a lot of, you know, other meditators within our community are helping, you know, kind of play roles and make this thing happen. So without meditation, um, I'd have a very different relationship to all, you know, all, all those components of my life. And those are pretty important components of life. And at the end of the day, this is what we're talking about at MediClub. You know, when, when I mentioned that we have this conversation component to our gatherings, we're touching on topics that matter to us, sex, dating, relationships, money, career purpose, um, social media comparison, stuff that we're all kind of going through, but not usually speaking about. What I've seen is that people that are meditating are, have been more inclined to want to go and talk about that stuff with strangers. So we celebrate that and we're looking to kind of make that safe and cool. Um, bravo to all that. And I certainly, you know, I, I, your in one of your many insights here is that practicing together actually has a real power, and I think that's just undeniably mm. true. Mm-hmm. So let me just—you've been a great guest. Let me just—one um, of the final things I just want to ask you is, out, out of curiosity, yeah. do you have a goal for your own meditation? Like, do you, are you trying to become enlightened? What does that and what does that even mean to you? Uh, I, I don't. The, the enlightened term seems like like a, some kind of like a media term. Um, <laughs> Yeah. It's not a media term. It's more like a <laughs> uh, like a ancient religious term. But the but 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 the way that I relate to it is, yeah. it sounds like a media term in that it feels like a thing that people say to reach enlightenment. Um, it feels confused and sort of misrepresented in our world. And well, I would agree with that. Yeah, and that's that's honestly how I associate with it. I'm like, it sounds like someone who's playing the role of like a yoga teacher in a in a, in a movie. <laughs> that's just how I relate to it. No, I. I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. So and, and so so I don't I don't have a goal with my practice. You know, like what I was taught from my teachers was when I'm closing my eyes and doing my practice, whatever happens is perfect. If I'm thinking the whole time, if I'm going, you know, quote unquote deep, if I'm experiencing benefits, if I'm not, if I'm hitting a plateau and I'm like, is this working? It's all perfect as long as I'm sitting down and practicing. And that's really what I what I've kind of stuck with. Nice. Yeah. That's a good place to end. Um, uh, I actually have one question for you. Yo, go for it. Yeah. So one of the things that really drew me to you when I first learned about you maybe a year or so ago was that you, in a very public way, got vulnerable about your own life. And as I mentioned, vulnerability, creating space for vulnerability is an important piece to what we do. And we're seeing how powerful it is. Do you feel like being vulnerable in the way that you were has a lot to do with the way that people have sort of latched on to your message and sort of followed the work that you're doing? You know, you know, there's no data in the publishing industry. So I know how many books I've sold, but I don't know why people are buying them or who's buying them or what they like about it. Uh, so, I mean, it's all anecdotal. And it's interesting to me, I hear, a, to, to the, I mean, I'm sure a bunch of people hated my book, but they, I don't really hear from them much. Right. But what I hear, I hear from people who do like it and, 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 uh, so some of them say, and these tend to be the older people, like my age uh, and and older. Uh, 
it's the skepticism that really worked for them. Like, mm. you know, if I start, I figured like if you could do it, anybody could do it. Right, so right. that was kind of when I talked about the last war, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I wrote the book in the mindset of everybody thinks meditation is weird. I needed to make it seem less weird. And now I'm realizing that not everybody thinks it's weird. Um, other people, I think, related to the book it, because of the vulnerability, because I talked about you know having a panic attack, mm-hmm. I've dealt with depression, anxiety, panic, the, the, the trifecta, um, drug abuse, so er, everything. Um, uh, although, too, uh, like you, I have a very privileged background, and I don't want I don't want to hide the ball on that mm-hmm. at all. Um, so I think it's I think it's kind of a mix, um, and you know it's really kind of in my head now because I'm working on my next book, and I. You know, I'm trying to think, like, what did I do right last time? Because I didn't even know what I was doing last time. I'd never written a book before, and it was it was a mess. The process was a mess. Uh, so I, I, that's a long way of saying I don't really know. Right, right. I don't know. Well, I, I commend you for, for doing it, man. It's uh, It was inspiring to see how you put yourself out there to get that story across. My, my hunch is that it probably inspired a lot of other people. Thank you. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't know if I've talked about this in the podcast before. I've, I know I've talked about it publicly, but um, to the extent that the book, my book was a success, actually was humbling on one level, which was that I realized that I spent an enormous amount of time while writing the book freaking out about how what people were going to think. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. am I going to lose my career because I did a lot of cocaine or, sure. you know, like, am I, 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 you know, my mother begged me not to publish the book. And like, it was a whole thing. I was freaking totally. out. And here's what was humbling. I realized when the book came out, nobody really cares about me. Like, <laughs> it was mildly amusing to hear that this guy who wears a tie and seems put together on TV. So this, like, C-level network news guy uh, freaked out. Like, that's mildly amusing. What people cared about was, what do you, Harris, have for me that could be potentially useful? And that was actually hugely liberating. Mm. Because I, I don't know walking around under the false impression that people really care about me <laughs> what I, what they care about is can mm-hmm. i can i deliver something useful mm-hmm. and that's been great mm-hmm. that's been great so um and i think it's just like changed the way i am in the world because i'm um i was burdened by a lot of narcissistic self self obsession that i realized actually i didn't need to be burdened by sure and and you you broke a mold in regards to how to get a message across and it it proved to be really meaningful Thank you. So it was cool to see. And I'm a fan of the podcast, too. All right. There's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. 
And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the cat in the hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.